Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we want to take up verses 29 through 34. John 1, 29 through 34. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and bear record, that this is the Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen to the reading of His precious Word and this declaration about the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, we have three days lined up here. Verses 19 through 28 of the first day. 29 through 34 that we're covering right now is the second day. And beginning at verse 35, we have the third day in succession as Jesus is made manifest to Israel. He's already been baptized. John already knows who he is. He's gone into the wilderness and been tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And it is time for him to enter upon his ministry. He comes back to the Jordan. He spends time on day two with John And John announces him to the nation of Israel as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he explains what God had told him, along with his commission to baptize, about the identification of the Messiah. That the Holy Spirit would descend on him in the form of a dove and remain there. And and John had seen that. And so now John had Jesus right there in front of him, pointing out, this is He, this is He of whom I have been telling you about, and identifies Him as the Son of God. The next day, the third day, He's going to say the same thing in describing Jesus as the Lamb of God in verse 36, and He will begin to lose His own disciples as they turn to follow Jesus instead. And there's a great transition of ministry right here in these three days as the focus is put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and shortly thereafter in chapter 2, he performs his first miracle, which John didn't perform a miracle at all. There's a great transition taking place here of these two greatest of men that ever were on this earth, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, we're looking at verse 29. The next day is the day after the Jews came and asked Jesus about his identity, which we covered last Lord's Day. 
In verses 19 through 28, verse 19 tells us that priests and Levites were sent from Jerusalem by the Jews, specifically by the Pharisees, to ask John the Baptist of his authority for what he was doing. John the Baptist said, I'm not the Christ. John the Baptist denied that he was Elijah. He denied that he was that prophet that Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. He said, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm fulfilling Isaiah 40 in verse 3. If you know your scriptures, he didn't say that. They should have known their scriptures. Guess where they were standing? In the wilderness. Guess what he had going for him? Miracles? Beautiful clothing? As Jesus would ask at one point about John, he had nothing going for him except a voice. And he was declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they said, well, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not that prophet? I'm simply baptizing with water for the baptism of repentance, but there stands one among you whom ye know not, that hasn't been fully revealed yet. He's coming after me, but he's preferred before me. I'm not worthy to loose his shoe latchet. This is the message that we've got up through verse 28. And now we're at verse 29 where it says, The next day. This was taking place at Bethabara, which is the, the place of the ford, or the house of the ford, which means you could wade the Jordan River at that point, which is perfect baptismal de- depth for a Baptist preacher, and the Baptist preacher was making good use of it. A crowd would have been drawn with the special attention from Jerusalem by the leadership of the Jews to ask John about him. And so the stage has been set, as we sometimes say, the table was set. For the Lord of glory. Now John has said this the first day. And now we come to this second day. It's time for Jesus to be made manifest to Israel. This morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, tell us that Jesus was foreordained to come and die for us before the world began. Before the foundation of the world. But was manifest... In these last times, the last dispensation, the time from John and Jesus to Jesus Christ's second coming, the last times. And John the Baptist was the one that made him manifest. That word was used in 1 Peter chapter 1. To make something manifest is to reveal it, to disclose it, to discover it, to show it to those that hadn't seen it before clearly. The next day, John seeth Jesus. It's time. John had denied that he was anything more than the voice. John had stated that there was one standing among them that they didn't know yet that was far greater than he. And they they respected John. Even Herod respected John. But John knew and John declared that he was far inferior to the one coming. This is after John baptized Jesus. What happened immediately after Jesus was baptized? The words are, immediately. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. That was the precursor to His ministry. He survived a personal assault by the devil himself. 
And that we are told about it in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And you know that event. Then he came back, meets John, is identified, and commences his ministry of preaching. We know this by the verb tenses that are used. We know this by John seeth Jesus and identifies him as the Messiah. Why does he identify him as the Messiah before his baptism if he's baptized in the verses we're now looking at? Because he had to wait for the Holy Spirit to descend upon him before he would know he was the Messiah and how to declare him. Because that had taken place earlier. He has come back for the public identification. And these expressions are not recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is John baptizing Jesus. But not here. That's just passed on over because it's in the other three Gospels. And so John has baptized him, and now it's time for identification. Because what we have is John speaking to Jesus and about Jesus, right here in these verses, and the next day, he's not off in the wilderness being tempted. He's commencing his ministry. Apostles are starting to follow him the third day. The third day, he's going to meet Simon Peter. He's going to meet Andrew. He's going to meet Nathaniel. He's going to meet Philip. On that third day, his baptism is historical. John's just telling us why he is identifying Jesus as the Son of God and as the Lamb of God because a particular specific event took place when he did baptize Jesus 40 days earlier or longer. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming to him. He he sees him now. He knows what he looks like. These two cousins had not spent time with each other because John was raised and grew up in the deserts. The Bible tells us that. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter by legal identification and in the eyes of all the common people, He was the son of Joseph. And so the two of them were separated. And he's going to say twice that he didn't know him. That doesn't mean he didn't know of him. You can know for sure that Mary and Elizabeth were not silent about the special character of the two baby boys they were going to have. You know what Mary did immediately upon hearing that Elizabeth was pregnant in six months in that period. And she, she rose up in those days and went to see Elizabeth. And they would have talked about the prophecies that they had received and the boys would have heard about them. But the boys were not together. And the words here are in particular to keep anyone from thinking it was a conspiracy. There was, when it says, I knew him not, there was no arrangement between us. We had not discussed this matter at all. We, we understand the word no in various ways in the Bible, don't we? Sometimes, I never knew you. We know that that doesn't mean Jesus never had knowledge of those wicked persons, but that he didn't have affectionate relationship with them. And when John says twice, I never knew him, it's to cut off any idea of a conspiracy or collusion between these two men. Because John's purpose, and this apostle of love that is so often described as an apostle of love, was very particular about truth. Very particular. Do you remember how verse 19 started? 
This is the record of John. Who wrote those words? The Apostle John wrote those words. Who are they written about? John the Baptist. This is the record of John the Baptist. Because this record is very important. Notice verse 32. And John bear record. That is John the Apostle writing again of John the Baptist bearing record of what he saw and what he heard. What he heard from God about what he would see and what he did see. If you read this carefully, you will see that the, that the foundation for the gospel is being laid as carefully with great integrity for you to believe it. And this was written when there were other eyewitnesses and contemporaries who could have sought to overthrow it. In verse 34, we have the words of John the Baptist, I saw and bear record. Because John was the one that gave the record. John is the one that heard, when you baptize someone that the Spirit of God comes down upon and remains on him, you can know something about him. He's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost. Now, John the Baptist has been preaching for some number of days, weeks, or months in that there was one coming after him that would baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so God has told John, first of all, God raised John up. He's going to tell us that. God raised John up and told him, get out there in the wilderness by the Jordan River and start baptizing people as they repent of their sins and get ready a people for my son. And so he's doing that. But that God also told him that commissioned him to preach, you're going to baptize one that the Holy Spirit is going to come down on. And when you see that, you can know that he's the one that you're preparing the way for and the transition is going to take place. I'm giving you a thumbnail sketch of these verses before we dive into them. The timing, the timing, as in all events, is entirely under the sovereign management of our God. The timing is perfect. Every visit by a dignitary in this world is choreographed in numerous ways for public appeal, to impress the masses, to impress the public. This is choreographed. There are visitors that have come out of Jerusalem by the leadership of the Jews to confront John and get a statement out of him, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not that prophet. But there is one standing among you that you don't know yet. He is greater than I am by far. He was before me. He's to be preferred before me. And I'm not worthy to loose the latchet of his shoe. That's all on day one. Day two. The next day. Not the next year. The next day. John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Now how did he already know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lamb of God? Because he'd already baptized him. He had already seen the Holy Ghost ascend. And if you read through these verses, you will find out that you are caught a number of different ways that that is the order that had to have taken place. Jesus did not leave this second day and go into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus began gathering his apostles together, preaching and performing miracles. Let's look at these words. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. 
Behold the Lamb of God. We don't appreciate lambs. We don't know anything about lambs. All those Israelites knew about lambs. And it's good for us to remember some of the things that they did know. A lamb was God's preferred choice of sacrifice for sin. And so there were many, many lambs offered. A lamb is helpless. What weapons does it have to defend itself? Like so many animals and creatures do. What does a lamb have? To run? You think it's as fast as a cheetah? They're not that fast. They don't have, they're helpless. They're meek. They're submissive. Every family knew about lambs because they had to raise them or buy them in order for the Passover every year. And they had to keep that lamb up for three days by its, with the family separate from the other sheep and they would get attached to that lamb. Behold the lamb of God. There is not a single occurrence of lamb in any form in the other three Gospels. This is John's choice. Which John? John the Baptist. And John the Apostle takes John the Baptist's choice and runs with it. The Apostle John loved this title that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us from the mouth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist picked this terminology by the inspiration of God. He was the greatest prophet that's ever been on earth. And he called him the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus in the crowd coming toward him. And now it's time to identify him and manifest him to Israel and to identify exactly who he is. The Son of God, the Lamb of God. The vice regiment of God, the God of glory, he's his Son. And he's the Lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. There is not a single occurrence of lamb in any way, shape, or form in all the epistles of our brother Paul. Think on that. Paul never used the word lamb. You had one occurrence this morning in Peter where lamb was used not as a name, not as a title, but simply as a simile of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eunuch was reading in Isaiah 53, and we have in Acts chapter 12, the record of that reading of Isaiah 53 where the word lamb is used. Other than that, and none of those are names or titles of Jesus Christ. They're metaphors. John the Baptist started something different. Behold the Lamb of God. And the Apostle John picked up on it so that we have two occurrences right here in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, and verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God with an exclamation point. As John emphatically, the next day, the third day of our three days, identified Jesus Christ. Now when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, he uses Lamb, capital L, as a name and title for Jesus 28 times. And if you want an interesting little Bible study, just look up Lamb from the book of Revelation and read the 28 verses. It'll move you. The Lamb of God is the glorious Son of God. Sometimes He's being viewed as a sacrifice, like in Revelation 5-6, and other times He's the glory of heaven itself. The Lamb is the glory thereof. It, capital L. I love our Bibles. 
I'm thankful for John the Baptist. And I'm thankful for this emphasis on this name and title of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the Lamb of God in several ways that we want to make sure that we understand. He's not the Lamb for any fear, helplessness, or intimidation on His part. He didn't run away and hide. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That was the Lamb of God. Jesus is not the Lamb for being a follower rather than our head and leader, for He is our head and leader. And He's not a Lamb only, because when He appears as a Lamb in heaven, in Revelation 5, 6, He has already been named in verse 5 as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I love the combination. And thank you, Dawn, for that tapestry that hangs in a certain room of our house that calls Him the Lamb and the Lion. I look at it often. And I appreciate it. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lamb of God. You're at the Jordan River in the middle of nowhere. In the wilderness. This hairy creature's before you named John the Baptist. He's not wearing fine clothing. Jesus, is, Jesus makes a point of that. What did you go out there to see? If you wanted to see somebody dressed well, you should have visited a king's palace. Here's this man. No, I'm not the Christ. No, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not that prophet that Moses told us would come. But I'll tell you, there's one among you. You don't know him yet. You don't know him. But he's so great, I can't even touch his shoes. The next day, Jesus steps out of that crowd and walks toward John. He's come back. He's ready to enter upon his ministry. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. We don't appreciate him because you don't know what a lamb's for. Michael? I don't think you even know what you did today. I like probabilities and statistics. There's only one psalm that fits today's message. It's Psalm 40. It's a messianic psalm, but it's the only psalm that says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. And you identified its fulfillment in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, with the next two verses, verses 7 and 8 there in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, I just want all of you to know, out of 150 psalms, that's two-thirds of 1% to land on that baby, is the only psalm that truly teaches this verse right here, John 1, 29. Because, behold, the Lamb of God is saying God has sent a new lamb with a capital L that's going to replace all the other lambs because sacrifice and offering God was through with. And that's what young Michael told us. Now Michael, if you picked that psalm in the last 24 hours, I commend your intelligence and acumen in the Word of God. If you didn't, I commend the intelligence and acumen of Almighty God by His Spirit, leading you to the only psalm 
that fits John 1.29. Do all of you understand that? Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, so I sent my own lamb. Listen, I almost, I almost messed you up this morning. For anybody that was saying, why is the pastor talking when the poor young man's up there trying to preach to us? It's because I was so excited. Beautiful. Beautiful. There's only one song that got cut this morning in my office out of the thousand songs that we can sing because we didn't have enough time for it. We have a song that is on hold for my dear brother and sister Leon and Francis but one, one song was cut out this morning and left on the floor of my office. And Michael picked that for the song to be sung with his song. <laughs> I was having a problem this morning. I, I, I wanted to be a Pentecostal, and I don't mean doing anything ungodly or immoral or wrong, but I wanted to jump on my chair and shout at all of you and tell you what was going down in front of you, and I'm telling you right now that you pick songs. I just... Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. That is what John one twenty nine means. Behold the Lamb of God. All those other lambs are worthless. Behold the Lamb of God. Because those past sacrifices were over and they had been replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God in several respects and we want to delight in those respects. He's the Lamb for being the docile, humble sacrifice put to death by others. Lambs yield themselves to others. He's the lamb for his meek and quiet submission to a brutal death. He didn't lift up his voice. He didn't threaten. He didn't revile. He was dumb as a lamb is before her, as sheep before their shears, meaning he didn't open his mouth. He didn't speak. That's Isaiah 53 in verse 7. There are characteristics of lambs and sheep that you ought to delight in. And by the grace of God, and by His timing alone, because I'm not nearly able to do this, two weeks from today, on Sunday afternoon, the largest sheep farm and the most progressive sheep operation in the state of South Carolina, just a few miles from this building, we are going to go visit whoever wants to and see sheep shearing, baby lambs, and all the rest. Thank you, Amanda Wiles. Adam, Adams Mill Road. Are you kidding me? It's only a few miles away. We're going to be able to see some lambs. But right now, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus fulfilled the implied lamb that Abraham and Isaac needed. Isaac said, Father, we've got the wood, we've got fire, and you've got me. What are we going to offer as a sacrifice? God Himself, God will provide Himself a lamb. God will provide Himself a lamb. Yes, behold the Lamb of God. In Exodus chapter 12, which is the, the Passover institution, there, their last night in Egypt for the nation of Israel, they took that lamb and kept it up and killed it and drained its blood and put it in a basin. Do you know how bloody and ugly and dirty that was and how painful it was for children that got attached to that lamb. But there was that bowl of blood and they stuck a branch of hyssop in it and spread it over that doorway so that when the angel of death went through Egypt that night, he would pass 
over their houses. And for 1,500 years, they kept the feast every year of the Passover because God had passed over when He came into Egypt in judgment and killed the firstborn in every household and even in the barns, farms, and dog pens of Egypt. Every beast died as well that was the first that had opened its mother's matrix or cervix. They saw, they knew all those lambs. Every family was familiar with the lamb. They knew that death was associated with it. They knew that in Egypt a cry went up at midnight. A cry came out of Egypt because the firstborn in every family had been killed. But in Egypt, in Israel, a lamb had been killed for every household. There was death everywhere. The little lamb had been a substitute for their firstborn. And so we have another substitute. Behold, the Lamb of God. Listen, there's never been greater words. What words move you? Is it one of our astronauts that landed on the moon and said something about a giant leap for mankind? What words move you? These are words that should move you. Behold, the Lamb of God. And it is a shame that we don't know enough about the sacrificial system of Moses and we don't really want to learn too much about it because it's all old. But for these people there at the Jordan River that God had raised up and stirred their hearts and minds or they knew from the timed prophecy of Daniel that they ought to be there because of this wild man in the wilderness that was a voice, they were wondering with expectation what was coming down. And the explanation, behold, the Lamb of God. And they had seen so many thousands or millions of lambs sacrificed in their lifetimes, but now there is a replacement for all of them. Look at Numbers chapter 28. Numbers chapter 28. Jesus fulfilled the lamb that Abraham and Isaac needed. Jesus fulfilled the Passover lamb. And that's why the Lord's Supper in in some limited senses is called the Passover because the blood shed by Jesus Christ is going to cause God to pass over us in the day of judgment. He's going to pass over us. Numbers chapter 28 tells us about some more lambs. Do you remember this? Beginning at verse 3, I'm going to read two verses. And thou shalt say unto them, this is the children of Israel, this is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto the Lord. Two lambs, of the first year, without spot, day by day, for a continual burnt offering. The one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shalt thou offer at even, in the evening. So there was the daily sacrifice of lambs of a year, of, of a year without spot, burned up on the altar every morning, every night. 365 days a year, 1,500 years from Mount Sinai to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in Numbers 28. Look at verse 9. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year without spot. So every seventh day, you threw two more lambs of the first year without spot on the altar. Verse 11. Seven lambs to start every month. And in the beginnings of your months, ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram, seven lambs, seven lambs of the first year without spot. 
Verse 19, every day of the seven days of the feast of Passover, ye shall offer a sacrifice made by fire for a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram and seven lambs. Every day of the seven days of the Passover. Verse 27, the feast of first fruits. Ye shall offer the burnt offering for a sweet savour unto the Lord. Two young bullocks, one ram, seven lambs. Seven, the perfect number of God, the complete number. Seven lambs, seven lambs, seven lambs, two lambs, morning lamb, evening lamb, lambs, Passover lamb, lambs. Wait till you see the little lambs. I almost brought one in here in a cage this morning to put... I just fear that somebody will think I've gone nuts. But we don't know what lambs are like. Cut them. Bleed them. Burn them. Cut them. Bleed them. Burn them. Stink. Blood. Flies. Blood. Death. Blood. Kill them. Blood. Death. Lambs. Lambs. More lambs. More lambs. And here's all these Jews. They've seen all these lambs. They know they're sinners. God has stirred them up enough to come out to the Jordan River. And they see the wild man standing in the Jordan. And here comes Jesus out of the crowd toward him. Behold, the Lamb of God. It doesn't mean enough to us. Behold, the Lamb of God. Have you ever heard the theological expression... The lamb slain from the foundation of the world? That is heresy. Everybody quotes it, except us. Everybody wants to quote that little phrase. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Let me show you where it comes from. I just want to clear this up before we move on. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. We don't want to take very much time on this point, although I love to make things clear so that we don't ever have this error in our church in the future. All you young men, if you read any theological books about the death of Jesus Christ, they refer to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now we know he's the lamb because of John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God. And they'll write in there, The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as if those words have some magical property by their intonation. Revelation 13.8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's where they get it from. Revelation 13.8, Because it says, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If He was slain from the foundation of the world, how did He die back there? If He's slain from the foundation of the world, is He being slain every day? There's a lot of prepositions in this verse. Do you know what prepositions are? Look at this verse. All we need is the last half of the verse are not written in the book. That's a prepositional phrase. In. In the book of life. That's a prepositional phrase. Of life. Of the Lamb is a prepositional phrase. From the foundation is a prepositional phrase. Of the world is a prepositional phrase. And you better make sure you know what they apply to. 
The lamb wasn't slain in eternity. And the lamb isn't in the process of being slain. The lamb was slain once on the cross of Calvary. And by that slaying on the cross of Calvary, put the book of life into force that everyone is covered whose names are written in it. Now if we turn over to 17.8, we can figure out how those prepositional phrases are to be used. And I've gone over this before, but we've got new people sitting in here. We've got children that understand things they didn't understand two years ago. And so we repeat ourselves. It's a long verse. We don't need the first half. We want there in the middle where it says of Revelation 17.8, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. The prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world is modifying the writing of God by God of names in the book of life. It is not modifying the lamb being slain. We agree that the lamb was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he wasn't slain before the foundation of the world. This prepositional phrase, by comparing the two verses, it is so easy to see that from the foundation of the world modifies the verb to write. Who taketh away the sin. Back to John 1.29. I hate having to be negative. Why in the world do they come up with such malarkey? Gobbledygook. You repeat it enough times, everybody believes it and think they've stumbled on something valuable. Jesus was slain 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years after the foundation of this world and the cross of Calvary. The prepositions are lined up perfectly. When were our names written in the book of life? That's taught throughout the whole New Testament. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, whose grace and purpose was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began, who promised eternal life before the world began. We were put in the book of life from the foundation of the world. If you're saying to yourself right now, could it, could it be possibly true that we're right and they're wrong? Yes. Remember baptism. 95% of all so-called Christians can't even figure out that simple little ordinance. You say, well, what, what gives us the right to think that we're right? Because we're the Lord's babes and we love to be so. Right. And we tell him that and we submit to him as that. And if he'll just show us his word, we'll just read it and believe it the way it's written. So we take 13.8 and don't go running off with some half-cocked idea. We take 17.8, compare the two and say, oh, it has nothing to do with the lamb being slain from the foundation of the world. Because all the words are there except the words lamb slain in 17.8. Which taketh away the sin. My dear brothers and sisters, We don't have a mechanism to consider sin other than the few hours in church. We don't have a mechanism like Israel had with all those sacrifices and offerings and the blood and the squealing and the flies and the stink and the stench and the smoke. We don't have a mechanism. It's a disadvantage living in the lap of luxury, distraction, and entertainment. The Jewish sacrificial system reminded them of sin on a constant daily basis Because the meaning of the words, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin. I've shown you a little bit about the Lamb, but now the words, Taketh away the sin. They offered for sins every year, month, day, every morning, every evening. Lord, help us. These Jews that were standing there at the Jordan, do you know what they understood? Their very limited reading material exalted the law of Moses. 
that they were condemned by 718 laws that they couldn't keep. And every year, remembrance was made of the fact that they couldn't keep those laws, as Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. They knew the origin of the earth and their genealogy from Adam very well because it was in their few holy books of the Old Testament Scriptures. The sin in the Garden of Eden and the horrific consequences, they knew. They knew about the flood. Do you know that their father Abraham was a contemporary of Shem for 150 years? Do you know that Abraham sat with Shem, who was on the ark, for 150 years? Shem died when Abraham was 150 years old. Abraham was born two years after Noah died. Do you think they ever talked about the flood? Do you think it might have come up once in a while? If Noah died two years before Abraham was born? If Shem was still alive? Did they ever talk about the flood? They knew what God thought of sin. Are you with me? It was in their, their holy books. Their books of Moses. And they had... They were so closely connected to it in time. We're so far removed about it. They knew the Tower of Babel. For it occurred just 200 years before Abraham. They knew the destruction and mocking of the nation of Egypt for its sins. They knew what God did to Egypt for sin. They knew what happened to Nadab and Abihu for slight ministerial sins. I speak as a fool. Any sin against God isn't slight. They knew what happened to Korah and others for disrespect to Moses. They knew the annihilation of seven nations of Canaan for their many sins and abominations. They knew what happened to Assyria for messing with them. 185,000 in one night. The overthrow of Nineveh by Babylon. They knew what happened to Babylon for Babylon's many sins. They knew that desolation was shortly coming upon themselves for their own abominations because if they were at the Jordan River for the 490-year prophecy given by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, it includes, for the overspreading of abominations, the Jews were going to be made desolate. They understood the wrath of God and His condemnation of sin, even of their nation. Do you grasp the consequences of sin and eternal damnation coming for you. The words, I never knew you, is because of sin. Is because of sin. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin. Thank you, Lord. Death is the end of life. Death is the beginning of torment. Death is misery, pain, and trouble. Death is a happy, lively, and gorgeous girl as a cold, ashen, gray, and shriveled old woman. Death is a strong, virile, and handsome man, curled up with only yellow skin and bones left. Death is working right now to choke out your life and leave you a rotting, stinking corpse. Death is the greatest punishment an infinitely wise Creator could design for rebel enemies. And death in three levels. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. The world may laugh and joke about the certainty of death, but check them out at a funeral. Death is consuming and devouring you as I speak to you, for it is always working hard on sinners. And we're all sinners. You've heard this before. Death is sucking the memory out of your brain. My mother died of Alzheimer's. Death is sucking the sight out of your eyes. 
the hearing out of your ears, the teeth out of your mouth, the taste out of your tongue, the moisture out of your mouth, the elasticity and clarity out of your skin, the firmness out of your flesh, the hormones out of your body, the form out of your shape, the strength out of your bones, the power out of your muscles, the flexibility out of your joints, the color and shine out of your hair, the hair off your head, the brightness out of your eyes, the desire and ability out of your sex, the insulin out of your pancreas, the processing out of your kidneys, the courage out of your mind, the remaining beats out of your heart, and the life out of your soul. Right now, it's clutching at you. Death is eating us alive while I speak, and its conclusive finality is about to take us all down. You will decay until you are a rotting and weak lump, unable to eat, swallow, or breathe. And this death is good news. For it ends the painful connection of your spirit to your body. And when you die, your body lying cold, pale, and still in a casket, your spirit will be sent down, down, and further down into the black abyss of infernal wailing for eternal torment without relief or any hope at all of any lessening of the misery and pain for all ages to come. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb. He met death. He tasted death for every one of us. He took death on. He tore death's bars away. He ripped open the tomb. He rose from the dead as the mighty Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, our everlasting Savior. We should be so thankful for Him. I never knew you will be. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. What a change by the Lamb of God. You're a sinner by Adam and so many times over, they cannot be counted. Sin doesn't need to make you feel bad. Sin is any action against the Bible. Thoughts of foolishness are sin. Idle words will take you down. Dozing in this sermon shows that you have no regard for God as a consuming fire because we are supposed to worship Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear, but you don't have any. Thanks be to God for the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. There's John the Baptist. His little tiny ministry is coming to a close. He sees Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. It doesn't take away your sinning. It takes away the consequences of your sinning. It takes away the punishment, the penal, the eternal punishment of our sins. He became a legal substitute for us. His righteousness was imputed to us. Our sins were imputed to Him. He died the curse of death on the cursed tree. As the Old Testament taught, to hang on a tree and die that way is a curse. He endured the curse of the law negatively. He took all the sins of us and the Lord punished Him on the cross of Calvary. When He finished, God can't even remember your sins. Hebrews 8.12 
their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He washed us in His own blood. By Himself, He purged us. He's put our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin. Sin is singular because it's a collective noun for all kinds of sins by everyone under consideration. Lord, thank You. Messiah came to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That prophecy was given in Daniel chapter 9 and there were 483 years attached to it until the moment that we're reading about right now. With the baptism and the announcement of Jesus Christ until the anointing of the Most Holy. And the Most Holy is not a place on earth. The Most Holy was a person on earth. Thank you, Lord. The Gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. It's about taking away our sins. Thank you, Heavenly Father. The sins of the world. The world here is means the world of God's elect. We, have, we don't have the time to go chasing, but let's just look at a couple of them just for your comfort. The word world is used by John more than all the other New Testament writers combined. And he uses it with wide latitude, and I'll show you a few of those. Look at chapter 12 in his Gospel. John chapter 12. The word world is very limited in its sense. John chapter 12, and you know, the, it's our Arminian opponents that want to make the word world always mean, only mean, every single human being that's ever been conceived without exception. And if you take that definition, every single human being that has ever been conceived without exception, and try to stick that into the uses of the word world in the Bible, you will see that you can't do it. Now we know you can't do it in John 1.29 for these reasons. Why do those in the lake of fire have their sins on them and are sent to the lake of fire because of their sins? If He took the sin away of the whole world, meaning without an exception of a single person, why are they sent to hell for their sin? They still have their sin. Jesus didn't take their sin away. Why will the books be opened in Revelation chapter 20 to reveal the sins of men if the sins were taken away? Did He take away the sins of those that He's going to say in this Gospel, ye shall die in your sins? You know, they love to force the word world to be unlimited, but then they limit the word hate to mean a little less love. Have you ever listened to them reason the Bible? world becomes all-inclusive of every single person ever conceived in the history of our race. When it says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, they take hate and limit it down until it means just a little bit less love than you had for Jacob. They're Bible corruptors. And their Bible corruption is always to exalt man and never God. John twelve nineteen. what does it say here? The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. Had Sitting Bull gone after him. Genghis Khan. Adolf, Hitler. Had these Pharisees gone after him? Then what's this world that has gone after Jesus? Was it the Egyptians? 
Was it the Philistines? Was it the Assyrians? Was it the Chaldeans? Was it the Greeks? Was it the inhabitants of Rome? If we took the whole earth's population of that time, what percentage of them had gone after Jesus? Somewhere less than 1%. If we take the percentage of all men that have existed since Adam and Eve to the present time, what percentage had gone after Him? In this context, we can't measure it. It's too small. So the word world does not mean every single person without exception as they want to force on the word. Look at 14.17, John 14 and verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. Now wait a minute. That means right in the same verse we're told that some are part of the world and some are not part of the world. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him. That means the apostles were not part of the world. They were from another world. They were otherworldly. They were out of the world. The world's got to be limited to its context. Arthur Pink came up with seven categories for the word world in the New Testament. John Owen came up with 16 different categories, definitions for the word world in the New Testament. I'm just telling you, that if you want a little Bible study, go try to run the word world through the New Testament, especially the writings of John, and see how loosely it's used. Look at 15.19. John 15.19. If ye were of the world... Now, you know what those words mean? Those, mean? those words mean you're not of the world. Therefore, the world doesn't include the ones that he's speaking to. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. There's a world of the ungodly. In John 1.29, we have the world of the elect. Because he took away their sin. Here he says the apostles were chosen out of that world and were not part of it. Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Just a couple more. we got to bring this to a close. Thankfully, I gave you a little overview at the beginning. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. This is my favorite, though it's not John. Luke 2, 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I like this one because it's got the word all and it's got the word world. All the world should be taxed. Let's just go back to that time. What percentage of the world paid taxes to Caesar Augustus? Oh, somewhere around 2%. Do you think the Aztecs paid? Incas? The Cherokee Nation? The Chinese? The Japanese? We're only talking 2,000 years ago. Caesar Augustus. What about the Russians? Did they get their camels or musk ox together and take gold and silver down to Caesar Augustus? All the world. It's so limited. Do you understand that even when it says all the world, how are we supposed to understand it? By the context, who did Caesar Augustus have taxing authority over? The Roman Empire, its tributaries only. By context. So when it says, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, who's speaking? John the Baptist. Does he know that there is a difference in the nation of Israel between The wheat and the chaff? Did he say that the fan was already in Jesus' hands to burn up the chaff, but the wheat's being gathered into his garner? He knew exactly what he meant by the word world. The world of God's elect. 
Well, there's so many more, but we'll just pass on. Look at verse 30. We're gonna, we'll finish here fast. If we take a proportionate amount of time on the next five verses, we are in serious trouble. John 1.29 is what we've covered. Look at that verse. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now he's got Jesus right in front of him. The previous day, Jesus wasn't in front of him. He just told them, there's one standing among you. He's not here right now. He's not right here in front of me right now. But there's one standing among you that you don't know, that he's greater than I am. He's to be preferred before me because he was before me. But now he's got him right in front of him. So we get to hear this for the third time. This this preference of John for Jesus three times. Look at it. It's in verse 15. This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. It's in verse 27. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. And it's right here in verse 30. After me cometh a man which is preferred before me. Do you think John the Baptist had his priorities straight? Jesus was to be preferred before him. And so here, and some of these phrases we've already been over. This is he of whom I said. This is he. He's here now. Folks, look. Behold. What does that mean? Behold. Look. The Lamb of God is right here. This is He. This is He. This is He of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not. Before this event took place that I'm about to tell you about, we did not have any conspiracy. There was no collusion. I knew him not. He did know him as his cousin. But he didn't know him in any, they didn't have a relationship. Jesus had not been out in the wilderness with John the Baptist getting together and planning this event. I knew him not. I just came out to be baptized. I mean, John the Baptist is saying, I knew him not. I was just out here baptizing. But that he should be made manifest to Israel. He had been told that by God. Therefore am I coming, come baptizing with water. My purpose was to baptize and prepare a people for the arrival of Jesus Christ. I was told to do that, so that's what I've been out here doing. I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. This is right after saying, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is right after saying, This is he of whom I said, He's preferred before me because he was before me. Verse 32, And John bare record. Now John the Apostle put these words in here. And John bare record saying, the carefulness of our brother John. And if you remember when I opened up this study several months ago now, and I took you through an introduction to this writer in scripture of how careful and severe he is about doctrinal error, you should look at him with a different light than what so many say about him. But over there in 1 John, he just goes through the points. If anyone says that Jesus is not the Christ, he's Antichrist. If anyone says that Jesus Christ is, did not come in the flesh, he's Antichrist. He's, he's very specific, very detailed, and very severe. The only time Antichrist is used in the Bible. First and second John. And John bear record. Remember in verse 19, the apostle John opened up by saying, this is the record of John, meaning the Baptist. There is a record. There are revealed events. There are recorded events. 
there are eyewitness events and there were eyewitnesses that saw things. And John bare record saying, I saw. Do you know what those words mean? That is an eyewitness. Yes, your honor, I saw it happen. Do you know how weighty that is in court? I saw it. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. We know that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I knew him not. Notice this, 31, 33. And I knew him not. 31 and 33. There was no collusion, no plan, no joint effort on our parts. I didn't know him in any meaningful way. I just knew of him, but I did not know him. And I saw the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descend upon him and abide there and stay there on him. Verse 33, But he that sent me to baptize, this is Almighty God, with water, that same being, the same, said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Because that had been John's ministry, there cometh one after me that shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. In these short six verses, behold the Lamb of God, this is the Son of God. Not that. is He's right there. Jesus is standing in front of John. This is manifesting Him to Israel. This is the Son of God. Folks, this is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God. Behold Him. This is the one I've been talking about. This is how it happened. God that sent me to baptize. And all of you have come out here to be baptized of me in Jordan because God has stirred you up as well. That God told me to baptize and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that God told me that when I baptize one and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and stays on him, that one is the Lamb of God. That one is the Son of God. And I saw and I bear record that this is the Son of God. And as a Baptist, he knew who the Son of God was. I saw on bare record that this is the Son of God. And he saw the Spirit of God descend upon a man. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for John the Baptist. Thank you for the Apostle John. Thank you for the eyewitness accounts of I saw. Do you know how important that I saw is? The one that you see, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. When you see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, then know something. That one is the Son of God. That one's the Lamb of God. Now, now I know you all get excited about this seeing. Elisha to Elijah. Elijah to Elisha first. What wilt thou that I do for thee? Elisha says, I would like twice your spirit. Elijah says, you've asked a hard thing, but if you see me leave, you'll get it. Well, down comes the chariot and grabs Elijah and carries him off to heaven. And what does the Bible say? Elisha saw it. You know, all we have to do is read those words and we know that Elisha now has the spirit of Elijah and then some. And so Elisha picks up that mantle that had fallen to the ground as the chariot was twirling a little too fast and left the man. You know better than that. It was providentially left for Elisha to grab that mantle, go back to the Jordan River, smack the water and say, where's the God of Elijah? Whoosh! Now, you all like that Bible story. Do you love this one? Amen. You like that one? We should love this one. The God that sent me to baptize said, when you see 
The Spirit of God descending like a dove and abiding on one. That is the Lamb of God. That's the Son of God. I saw and I bear record. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe this record? How much do you believe it? What effect is it going to have on your life? Do you love this Savior? Do you love this Lamb? This lamb died. This lamb was beaten, pierced, ripped, poked, nails driven through his hands, thorns beat into his brow. He bled from all over his body. He was scourged. His back was ripped open. He was bleeding from all over. And he died on the cross of Calvary, the Lamb of God, as a substitute for God to deliver us. He took away our sin. Sin takes away everything of value to us in this world because our hope and faith is in another world where God is and Jesus sits beside his throne waiting for us. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's going to welcome us into his presence because he came for us. He tasted death in our place. He was a substitute. Our sins by imputation were put on him in the accounting legal records of heaven and his righteousness was imputed to us. We are seen by God in his righteousness Our sins have been washed away forever by the sacrifice of Jesus who then rose from the dead, victorious over sin, death, the devil, and hell. Yes, behold the Lamb of God.